I'm sitting here and there's constantly the molecules of air bouncing into me from, from all around. And, and so for that reason, the molecules in my body are becoming correlated with the molecules in the room. And that's information being transferred from the room to me. But that's not meaningful at all. That's just sort of ubiquitous correlation. So on the other hand, you know, if I see a car coming towards me when I'm walking down the street, the way my nervous system and body is set up is that I use that correlation to jump out of the way and maintain myself. And so by virtue of how I'm structured, certain information acquires meaning for me. It might tell me where there's food or where there's danger, and it becomes very different from just correlations. And so I think one of the things that I'm interested in is, you know, as I was saying, there's these kind of new subfield in physics, stochastic thermodynamics, which a lot of what it looks at is energy requirements of acquiring and processing and using information. You know, it really doesn't make a distinction between this kind of meaningful or you might say functional information or just an empty correlation. <laughs> Matter, energy, and information, the holy trinity of physics, understanding the relations between these measures of our world is one of the big questions of complex system science. The laws of thermodynamics tell us that entropy, loosely but somewhat inaccurately speaking disorder, increases in any closed material system. But at the same time, living systems, generally not closed, constantly pump out entropy thereby keeping themselves alive by harnessing flows of energy and information. We know that physical systems gain or lose energy as heat. But what is the difference between exchanging heat and exchanging signals with information relevant to a system's continued existence? In other words, when is information meaningful? When do goals and meaning come into play? And how do a system's constraints and embodiment figure in? Understanding how to formalize the interactions of our jostling cosmos and reveal the engine of emergent order is the quest of all quests. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast for the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every two weeks we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week, we speak with SFI program postdoctoral fellow Artemy Kolchinsky, who studies how information is organized and processed in biological, neural, and physical systems. In recent publications with SFI professor David Wolpert, Artemy explores fundamental constraints on the energy required to process information and seeks to define semantic information or information bearing meaningful content. Our conversation takes us on a winding path into a thick, dark wood in which meet trails cut by cybernetics, cognitive science, statistical physics, and astrobiology. Tis the season, so if you value our research and communication efforts, please, please consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash podcast give and or rating and reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. You can find numerous other ways to engage with the Santa Fe Institute at santafe.edu slash engage. Avid readers, take note that SFI Press's latest volume, Complexity Economics, is now available at Amazon and sfipress.org in paper book and Kindle ebook formats. Thank you for listening. Artemy Kolchinsky, this is long overdue, multiply rescheduled. It's delighted mm -hmm. to have you finally on Complexity Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's fated to be eventually. You're in a very squeaky chair, but we'll make it work. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's actually kind of like uh, that's perfect because it's you know it's information I'm sensing about the environment, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Noise. Anyway, let's get into first because your work is so dense and labyrinthine and curious and and ambitious. And I'm really in awe, frankly, of the kind of questions that you're tilting after, almost a chaotic quest 
to get at some of the deepest stuff here. But I'd love to know how you got into science in the first place. What drew you into these inquiries at all? You know, how did you end up at SFI? This is where we we typically like to set the launch pad for these conversations. Right. Well, thank you. That was a very flattering description, overly, maybe a bit. But I think my interest in science definitely started because my father is a biologist. And so, molecular biologist. And I didn't necessarily grow up thinking I was going to be a scientist at all. But as I was growing up, I remember we would get into these conversations where he would just kind of just explain to me what we know about how the cell works and how biology works at the nanoscale. And I remember this like intense feeling of wonderment at how complicated everything is and just like bewilderment at how, where this came from, how it could have been constructed, how it all seems to work together. And it was very captivating discussions we had. And I think that, you know, that that's definitely sparked a certain interest in science and uh, I was also kind of a computer nerd growing up. I like taught myself to program. I loved playing with computers. And uh, when I got to college, I actually didn't know what I was going to study. I was kind of a, a bit of a lost <laughs> in, in many ways. But um, and I started uh, just kind of with no major, very general program. And I it was very I was kind of bored, and it was not a very good education. And I remember at some point I switched into this this program in my college, which was New York University, and they have a school in it called Gallatin School of Individualized Studies, where basically, you know, you can study whatever you want. There's as long as it's like interdisciplinary and all over the place. And quite a few of my friends were in it, and I don't know, it seemed very freeform and uh, you know, you didn't have to go to these like three hundred person massive lectures, the core courses and stuff. So I entered that. And then towards the end of my undergraduate studies, I kind of like randomly browsing through the library stacks, I came across this shelf of books that was all about kind of like SFI stuff. So there was a book about artificial life. And there was a book, it was also, I mean, I think in the library, I remember coming across a book about artificial life. And there's also a book about artificial consciousness or something. And I was totally fascinated by this. Also, it's just like very random encounter and fascinated by this little, you know, aisle of pop science. And also at that time, so this is the early 2000s is when complexity really was kind of big in the pop science world. And Barabasi's book Linked came out and Stephen Johnson's book on emergence came out. This, you know, is also being applied in all kinds of domains. Smart Mobs, that book by uh, Lessig, I think, came out. And so I started getting really into all this kind of pop science. I read Complexity by Waldrop and I got really into complexity and this idea of emergence and kind of very much the pop science version of it. This, you know, this, this notion that a neuron is not conscious, but a collection of neurons is. And, you know, you get qualitatively new properties when you combine large numbers of things and so on. And uh, I got really also like I became kind of SFI fanboy, I guess, and became really interested in this place. And uh, it's actually interesting. I think I applied to the summer school like at the end of my undergrad, but I, I didn't get in. And like many things at the time, I think I wrote my like submission essay, you know, at five in the morning, like the morning before it was due. <laughs> and uh, a year or two ago, I randomly came across it on my hard drive and I, and I pulled it up and it was so bad. It was like, oh, wow, I clearly wrote this at five in the morning, you know, the day before it was due. Anyway, so that was kind of how I first got interested in SFI. It's not necessarily how I ended up here. Then after... My undergrad, I went traveling for a couple of years. And again, I got really into kind of academic and scholarly activities and a life and this kind of stuff. At the end of my undergrad, I didn't necessarily think I, you know, was going to be a career or anything like that. And it also helped that I was knew how to program. It was quite, you know, that's kind of how I made money for a lot of years programming. So that also helped kind of get into that field of study, because of course, what SFI does is from the beginning was very computational and it's closely tied to computational methods. 
And I went traveling after undergrad for a few years, and I kind of got bored with things. And I decided to apply for grad school. And I went to basically like the only grad program that had really a PhD in complex systems, which was Indiana University Bloomington, at least to my knowledge, and at least in the broad sense. So really not sort of complex systems in terms of like complex materials tied to physics, but really networks, but also like complexity in biology and so on. And during my PhD, I got really into information theory. And information theory is a kind of universal language. A lot of complex systems is about seeing common patterns in very many different systems. And information theory seemed like a very powerful language for doing that and for studying kind of organization in general or pattern in general. And I, uh, so a lot of my PhD or at least towards the end, was about using techniques from information theory to try to study complex systems or developing new methods. And it was quite methods-y, I would say, uh, my PhD. And um, I feel like I've been talking for a while, maybe too long. <laughs> uh, You're good. Okay. This is good. Okay. 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 I'll just keep going. You know, this is a deep, dark wood we're entering here with a long, winding okay. road into it. So, and it just gets okay, less okay. and I'll less. Okay, I'll just keep... I'll, I'll just keep talking. I'll just, I mean, I, probably everyone is asleep at this point or um, <laughs> anyway. And then the other thing I became quite interested in I, towards the end of my undergrad, actually, I sort of randomly sat in on this graduate course on cognitive science, which seemed interesting. And it seemed closely related to also cybernetics, which was something I got really into during my undergrad is this kind of forgotten pre-complexity, complexity theory. And one of the other things I got really interested in during my PhD studies was the cognitive science program at Indiana University in Bloomington, which is particularly known as kind of uh, the origin of a particular kind of approach to cognitive science, which is sometimes called dynamical systems approach to cognition. And to simplify it a bit, it really tries to move away from a model or a metaphor of cognition as being like a computer or like being a computer program, which, you know, is tied to certain currents in philosophy of mind and in philosophy about representations and beliefs and ideas. And uh, it's, it's hard to understand how to sort of naturalize that or to connect to to this traditional sort of approach to cognitive science, it's hard to connect it to other domains of natural science. The dynamical systems approach really sees cognition as basically adaptive behaviors, the ability to achieve certain goals by a dynamical system, which is both the body and possibly nervous system, but also in combination with a certain environment in which the system is situated in. And in some ways, you know, it's very, it really sees cognition as being present in even the simplest organisms. So it's it's much closer to sort of how people study behavior or uh, functionality or information transfer in all kinds of, for example, biological systems, including, you know, single cells. And it lets us talk about, for example, information processing and even adaptive information processing without bringing in a lot of these really philosophically loaded terms that have a lot of baggage, like, for example, representation, belief, desire, and so on. And so that was a big influence on me, sort of being in contact with those ideas in Indiana, and particularly Randall Beer is somebody who does really amazing work there and, and influenced me quite a bit. And then slowly winding my way to SFI. When I finished my PhD, I sort of was unsure how to proceed I had some qualms about academia, which I think is pretty common after the, the emotional work of doing a PhD. <laughs> and I kind of just hung out for a little while and I ended up going to the conference on complex systems, which happened that year in Tempe, Arizona. And I ran into David Walpert, who was giving a talk and I'd never met David before. But his talk was very provocative. I had some thoughts and I kind of chatted with him about it. And one thing led to another. We, we had a ton of interest in common and he invited me to visit SFI. And then 
I kind of got hired for a short period of time and then we applied for some grants. And anyway, here I am like four years later or something. At SFI, where I've, I've been working with David. And the things that I've been working with David on and really the thing that sort of I started doing since coming to SFI was using some of my existing knowledge of information theory uh, and some of my other skills, but also combining that with this new kind of rapidly expanding subfield of statistical physics, which is called stochastic thermodynamics. It's just, it's, it, it really looks at the thermodynamics of usually small fluctuating non-equilibrium systems. And it's very closely tied to information theory. It really, you could maybe say it's almost like a reformulation of statistical physics almost entirely in terms of information theory. And that might be a slightly controversial way to put it. And it's very interesting. It sort of lets us analyze a lot of things rigorously that, that were kind of impossible to analyze before from a physical thermodynamic perspective, including, for me, one of the most interesting things is the physics of systems that acquire information and process information and use that information. This could be like little computer chips. It could be like biological organisms. It could even be, you know, some kind of proto cells that have a flow of information through them and maybe use that information to do things like acquire food, acquire energy, and so on. And so, these are the topics I've been I've been working with David quite a bit on, and and really in a sense, they're sort of adding a somewhat physical perspective to a lot of these interests that I've had for a while. In particular, trying to understand things like minimally cognitive systems. You know, what are the constraints on those? What is a good way to model them and to understand them? And even things like autopoiesis, which is this idea that there's a sort of a fundamental pattern that characterizes living things and that really distinguishes living things. And yeah, I think I'll stop there for now, <laughs> this, this spiel. So that's kind of how I got to where I am now and also the kinds of things that I like to think about. Right on. Yeah. You know, a lot of this is very resonant with me. I, I don't know, without knowing the year of your alma mater, I think you and I seemed like we were kind of reading the same books and on the same trajectory and that you just had a much more sort of hospitable environment that knew what to do with you. I mean, around that same time, I remember being like bringing this type of question to my advisors and they're just like, define complexity for me. I dare you. You know, like mm -hmm. you're going to have to bury big questions like this until you get tenure. There's no way someone's going to allow you to charge after these things as a graduate student. I so see. You're very fortunate. Yeah. But but at the same time, you know, I was really lucky. I don't know if you know um, the book Evolution as Entropy, Edward Wiley at the University of Kansas. I don't. He was one of the people I, I spoke to about this. And it seems like his his stuff is really, it's just strange. I don't, I, you know, it just maybe a, a dispositional thing that you kept with it. But so one of the questions that I love that you are are so eager to explore in your work and that, you know, I've just been wondering about uh, rather fruitlessly for the last 15 years <laughs> instead <laughs> is, is, is this question about the relationship between energy, matter, and information. And then as you alluded to just a moment ago, the way that information suggests a kind of sensation of the environment. You know, the, the cognitive act is an act of, you know, making sense of things, I guess you might say in a way. I mean, you can you can check me on any of this, but... Makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> go, go on. <laughs> in, you know, I love in David Krakauer's talks when he, he shows the math behind evolutionary adaptation and inferential guesswork. I mean, mm -hmm, you know, just mm -hmm. inference. It's, it's, it's the same underlying mathematics. And so there's the sense in which evolution as a distributed process of a system navigating its super system or whatever. And so where do you strike into this? As someone who's working in statistical thermodynamics, one of the things that I, I guess the, maybe the right place to start would be with your paper on semantic information that you did with David Wolpert. Mm -hmm. That piece, that's really important, I think, because the common intuition for people is that information has content, and that's what makes it information. That's a very, very much a cybernetics Gregory Bateson, the difference that makes a difference kind of thing. It's like, it's information because it's about something. It's relevant in some mm -hmm. way. And, and so how are you 
formalizing this? How are you decomposing this and making useful specifications? And then where do those lead you? Right. Sorry for the squeaky chair. Let me just like squeak it all out now. (laughs) So a couple of thoughts. I mean, one of the things you brought up is that this is like pretty heady, big issues, this relationship between matter and information and cognition and life and so on. And I just wanted to make one comment about that. Since I've been at SFI and really had a chance to learn more about physics uh, and kind of it's been a bit of a journey, one of the beautiful things and one of the reasons for the success of like physics type thinking is sort of trying to boil things down to the simplest model that really focuses on the core issues or highlights the core issues and disregards everything else. I know it's a, it's a bit of a cliche, but I think even in this case, that's sort of like how I've been trying to ground things and I've been thinking about it and I don't think I'm quite there yet, but I do think that my way to proceed without getting vertigo is to try to, you know, and it's something I've kind of been thinking about lately is to try to come up with simple model. It could be like a set of chemical reactions or something like that, that really captures the basics of maybe like a self-sustaining autocatalytic system that also is using information to sustain itself, that also, you know, it has exchanges of matter and energy that are represented. So it's just that we can really analyze and build intuitions from and uh, kind of understand how these things relate. And I think that's also one of the things that I saw kind of happening in Bloomington. And I mentioned Randall Beers, something he did was kind of build these minimal models of really these tiny neural networks that were kind of dynamical systems that could do a lot of interesting behaviors that people thought you needed representations for. So really kind of using these minimal models to touch, maybe uh, say something relevant even to philosophy, right? Or So build these minimal models that could do things like relational categorization is one thing better, be, bigger than another one. And, you know, these are kind of been classic debates in cognitive science. Oh, you know, oh no, like surely you need a full on like symbolic reasoning to do things like that. Well, no, not really. I mean, there's no reason to think of it. So, so that's kind of the way I try to, you know, circumscribe these things. So it doesn't sort of just like spiral out of control. And then Right. The, the other thing you mentioned, and which is which really related to what we're talking about, is this notion of semantic information, as as me and David called it in a paper, and just this notion of the relationship between information and cognition, and making sense of the world, and you know, perception, sensation, etc. And I think, in some sense, there's a really important distinction to make, and this is one of the distinctions. I hope we sort of pushed and and something I want to keep pushing in the future is in some sense, information is ubiquitous throughout the physical world. So just, you know, in physics, when things interact, they tend to become correlated. There's a kind of a famous thought experiment. I, I forget who it's by. It's about Wheeler or somebody like that. Who's, he says the gravitational field of a single electron being present or absent on at the edge of the galaxy will change whether collision happens in a box of gas within, you know, less than a second. Because it's a highly chaotic system. And even that, you know, astronomically small gravitational pull of electron makes a difference. And so in a way, that's a difference that makes a difference. I mean, in the literal sense, right, whether electron is there or not makes a difference whether, let's say, an atom collides with another atom or not. But this is spreading through everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Everything is kind of correlated. I think that something much more interesting happens, for example, in living things, where it's not just that things are correlated, which is a some this notion of two things being correlated, sometimes called syntactic information, because it completely doesn't depend on their meaning. Uh, you know, the fact that an atom missed colliding with another atom in a box of gas, and the fact that it's correlated with the presence of electron, it doesn't necessarily have any kind of meaning, and. In this paper, I mean, David defines semantic information, which is sometimes taken to be information that has meaning, whatever that means, in a very particular way. So we, we said that, you know, a piece of information, so basically correlation, has meaning for a system if the system uses that correlation to maintain itself in existence. So, for example, I'm sitting here 
And there's constantly the molecules of air bouncing into me from, from all around. And, and so for that reason, the molecules in my body are becoming correlated with the molecules in the room. And that's information being transferred from the room to me. But that's not meaningful at all. That's just sort of ubiquitous correlation. So on the other hand, you know, if I see a car coming towards me when I'm walking down the street, the way my nervous system and body is set up is that I use that correlation to jump out of the way and maintain myself. And so by virtue of how I'm structured, certain information acquires meaning for me. It might tell me where there's food or where there's danger, and it becomes very different from just correlations. And so I think one of the things that I'm interested in is, you know, as I was saying, there's these kind of new subfield in physics, stochastic thermodynamics, which a lot of what it looks at is energy requirements of acquiring and processing and using information. You know, it really doesn't make a distinction between this kind of meaningful or you might say functional information or just an empty correlation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, so there's, forgive me for uttering the taboo here, but I mean, this suggests a kind of endogenous telos, right? This is the thing that I, I feel like people at the periphery of this conversation get really confused about, like this idea that, yes, evolution does not have a direction, okay? Or, you know, the, the universe in whole is mm -hmm. running from order into disorder. But, you know, you look at it and it's actually all of these nested systems. And like you said, you know, they have different structural properties and depending on how coarse your grain, at what level you focus, then you will see an opposite story that there is, like you said earlier, uh, goal orientation. And so I know that you have been thinking recently about how this relates to the origins of life and, you know, the search for life on other worlds. And it's interesting to ask in the framing of st stochastic thermodynamics, where is the point at which you can say that a goal emerges? And is that the same as saying that this is the point at which meaning emerges, at least from like within the system? Again, to draw in Varela and, and Maturana's autopoiesis, that notion mm -hmm. that these are systems making sense of their environments. What do you feel like your insights are into that? It sounds from the conversations we've had on the show so far that it's not useful anymore. It's actually misleading for us to think of there being a moment at which the light comes on and there's life suddenly out of non-life. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But what are we talking about when we talk about a gradient? Is that the same thing as like a gradient of non-meaning to meaning or non? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, these are, these are interesting questions. And, uh, you know, I think to sidestep the philosophical quagmires a little bit, <laughs> I, I sort of prefer to take a very operational view of these things. And what I mean by that is to say, and, and what the approach we took in, in the semantic information paper is to say, look, let's just treat the system as basically as if its goal is to self-preservation, as if its goal is to maintain itself out of equilibrium, maintain itself as an organized entity. You know, I certainly don't want to say that there's some other kind of teleological force additional to, you know, mechanistic forces or something like that. On the other hand, you know, if we observe something like a chemotactic bacteria navigating its environment, it's certainly, I think, very a very helpful compressed description of its behavior to say that it has certain goals and it acts to further those goals. I think, I think you know, for me, it's sort of, we can say it's, it's kind of a way of speaking, but it's also, you can make it very operational. We can say if we knock out this gene, for example, what breaks and how does that, let's say, hurt the bacteria's ability to maintain itself alive? Well, you know, we can then say the, the function of that gene, which is, of course is very goal-directed language, right? What is the function of something? It's to do, to do blank. We can say the function of that gene is to, you know, allow it to digest lactose or whatever. So, you know, in biology, it's certainly very helpful to talk as if things have goals. And I think that can even extend beyond biology. Uh, so, you know, we might say uh, something like a hurricane is a self-maintaining non-equilibrium structure. It's, you know, it's, it's stable, it funnels 
energy from the warm ocean to the cooler atmosphere. And in, in doing so, it constantly is rebuilding itself. I think we can sort of analyze it as if its goal is self-maintenance and see maybe how different aspects of its structure, like the eye of the hurricane or whatever, contribute to that. And I think we can do that without, again, kind of delving into the philosophical quagmires, which, you know, I think, well, Kant wrote a lot about this. I mean, he, he was very much, very scientifically literate, and he wrote a lot about how organisms really seem to have goals. We, you know, he's, he was kind of like, I, I'm not saying that there's teleological forces, you know, final causes, but it certainly seems like they have goals for themselves. And this is kind of this paradox that maybe it's just, they lend themselves so well to that description. I mean, it's, it, but it really, I think it's a difficult philosophical territory. And what I would say is like, let's just treat them as if they have goals and let's analyze it in that way. And so going back to meaning, you know, I think, even maybe a hurricane has a tiny little bit of meaning. I don't actually know much about hurricanes, but we could imagine maybe if a hurricane could preferentially move towards warmer waters instead of just being you know, shoved around by the winds, then it could maintain itself for longer. So maybe it, you know, we could say, well, it's using some kind of information about where warmer stuff, where there's more energy to feed it to to maintain itself. I mean, I think, it, you know, it's a bit of a stretch, but I think it's less of a stretch if we, we maybe start to talk about things like protocells, right, which are little chemical hurricanes that are maintaining themselves and are thought to have laid before the origin of modern life, but already had some things like simple metabolism and simple self-maintenance. And we can say, well, okay, well, you know, we can easily imagine one of these protocells could maybe sense what's going on in its environment and respond in different ways to its environment and and thereby maintain itself around for longer. And that might have a little bit of more meaning, more useful functional information than, let's say, a hurricane. And you get to things like mammals or you know animals in general which have these incredibly sophisticated nervous systems for that are very tuned precisely to pick up a huge amount of meaningful information from the environment right i mean where the food is where the mates are where the danger is and have this kind of huge amount of functional information flowing through them so i would definitely agree with you i think it's very much a continuum and i think one of the things that we've been thinking about is even like, how could you define quantitative measures of meaning? Mm. So in that question, in that line of questions, the hurricane has no sensory organs, right? Whereas mm -hmm. you and I obviously do. And, and in fact, even beyond that, there is this sense, again, drawing on, you know, cybernetics and the work of people like Marshall McLuhan, like media theory, talking about the electronic surround as an extension of the human nervous system. There's a sense in which the history of science itself can be understood as the evolution of new instruments. So we're talking about this with Peter Dodds on the, the last episode of this podcast about, you know, the way that we're able to use like text modeling and, and timeline analysis from social media as a way of like peering into the collective mentation of the human species. And it's yeah. like just the latest example of this trajectory of us developing ever more nuanced and sophisticated tools of sensing our environment. And so I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that specifically about Again, this whole matter-energy information relationship and how it plays out in what seemed to me at least to be evolutionary arms races, right, in the evolution of new sensory equipment. This is something I was thinking a lot about seven years ago when Google Glass came out. And it was, it very swiftly seemed like one of these, like, oh, it's a haves or have nots kind of thing. Like, are you going to be technologically augmented? You know, are you going to be able to look at somebody and pull up their, their you yeah. know, their biographical information and that you'll have an edge on them. And that feels a lot <laughs> like what was happening with the evolution of the eye in the Cambrian explosion over 500 million years ago. And that there's a continuity here that the evolution of intelligence is the evolution of sensory abilities and that there's there's a, a co-evolutionary dance going on that's constantly ratcheting these things as 
living in a more intelligent and sensorially empowered, you know, sensory motor sophisticated right. environment has a higher demand on a system in, in, in terms of its ability to navigate it. So like, I, yeah, how do you make sense of, how do, how do you as a technologically augmented 21st century SFI postdoc make sense of all right. of this? And where is the underlying uniformity there? One of the things I would say is like, do we really know a hurricane doesn't have a sensory organ? And what I mean by that is... It's not always clear what is and is not a sensory organ. So, for example, there are models of protocells uh, where there's no explicit sensory organ for sensing the direction of food, but just because, like, where the food comes from, the membrane grows faster on that side, effectively, you end up moving towards the food. Right. Or, for example, in a bacteria, you know, we think of the flagella as a way to move around, but it's also actually used to sense the environment because it interacts with the world and it can actually send information back and forth. So I don't think that's contradicting anything you said, but I just I kind of want to point out that I think the separation of the system into specialized sensory and effectory organs, which actually I'm not totally sure how separated they are, uh, right? Like the hand is both very sensory and very factory in, in people. For, but even even mm, the, no. having specialized effectors and sensors might be kind of a recent thing or even a special thing. And so I think actually, and this is something I want to explore, but I, I suspect that even things like simple sort of stochastic chemical networks have some minimal essentially sensory abilities uh, in the sense that, uh, for example, you know, chemical systems have all kinds of correlations running through them because, uh, as I said, when things just like interact with each other, they build up correlations. And so it's not necessarily the information is there. You just kind of, you know, you have to, can you use it to do something functional? So that, that was my first point. The second point is, you know, I think you bring up a really interesting point about development of specialized sensory organs and and that can actually trigger whole new entrance into whole new niches and entrance into whole new sort of evolutionary landscape. So, you know, once you develop eyes, now you can start to become selected on how well you hunt, for example, right? So it's like, you know, you add dimensions of behavior by being able to sense new things. And you kind of expand. I think it's a very kind of good example of adding adding complexity almost in like a qualitative way. But I don't know if I have much to say about all that scientifically, at least in terms of what I was talking about, because, you know, one of the things about this new field of non-nuclear statistical physics and the relationship between matter information and energy that it gives us is... In general, these relationships are, I would say, meaningful, not always, but in general, they tend to be meaningful really at the molecular scale or at the level of very small energy fluctuations. And they sort of set fundamental bounds as determined by physics. And one of the big questions is, and, and I lots of people are kind of skeptical. It's like, do they have something to say about, let's say, the energy trade-offs involved in a, in a mammalian brain or any brain for that matter? Because brains operate very, very far from these limits. It's kind of like, you know, trying to apply quantum physics to explain why I went to get lunch or something. It's like, we have to be really careful because at macroscopic scales, these quantum effects, they really disappear and the world is mostly classical. And it's, it's kind of a mistake to think that it applies. And so also, at least it seems like many of these really fundamental relationships between information and energy and matter, they really are mostly meaningful at really the scale of molecular systems, at least in my point of view. And that's one of, you know, that's kind of one of the reasons why I'm interested in trying to apply them to things like protocells, origin of life, is because... Protocells are very small, or there's a good chance they were very small in terms of, you know, maybe thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of atoms. And they could have been very small. And I actually think that these fundamental relationships might have played a big part in like very, very early trade offs, very early evolution. And I'm not 
Also, like I said, what you brought up is very interesting. I'm not sure like non-nuclear physical physics has something to say about the complexification of life via development of new sensory organs in general, at least fund, you know, at this fundamental scale of like universal laws, which is basically what I'm talking about. These are like universal laws, basically the second law of thermodynamics. It's a question. And, and I kind of talked earlier about what I've been thinking about is that really minimal model in which to sort of work out these relationships. And the minimal model I'm thinking of most of the time is something like molecular, where these quantities make sense, you know. So a good rule of thumb is that a lot of these quantities are expressed in units of KT. And KT is like the size of a energy fluctuation, basically, at temperature T. And at room temperature, you can think of it, you know, the energy in KT is like, it's something like one five hundredth of the energy released by burning a single sugar molecule. So, so that's kind of the scale where a lot of these things are expressed in. So, you know, <laughs> to, I don't know if this is a challenge to that or, or not, but to bounce to the complete opposite end from the microcosm to the macrocosm, this question about the limits imposed upon evolutionary processes by thermodynamics, to me, begs the question about what your research might say about work that's being done elsewhere throughout the SFI research network on scaling laws and the developmental constraints on evolution and why it is that we only see certain kinds of life forms out of everything that we might imagine, why, you know, life forms seem to like when we had, you know, Melanie Moses on the show and we were talking about the moment at which the growth of an insect and then the emergence of a, a eusocial insect colony like ants or bees represents a kind of phase transition in the the you know like the computation being passed from the system at one level to a new sort of meta individuality at the next level yep. as a way of overcoming some of these scaling constraints. And it seems like your work really sheds light on that kind of a question. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are, you know, even though you're talking about, you know, the amount of heat generated by molecular interactions, what you think this might have to say for what is possible at the scale of human civilization or at the scale of the biosphere? What are the invisible limits to growth that are not necessarily, I mean, we, we just sort of assume they're not there because we don't, we don't see them, right? But like, this mm -hmm. seems like it would cast some light on that. I mean, I, I will qualify my statement a bit. And this is something I've been recently talking to Chris Kempis about, who is some, who's a faculty at SFI who works a lot on scaling. And it's related to some work Chris did with David earlier. Is I don't mean to say that these fundamental relationships between energy and information like don't matter for modern life. And in particular, we think that they matter a lot for the ribosome, which is a little molecular machine that makes proteins, which is basically, you know, in every cell. And that's most of the energy expenditure of a cell. Certainly the huge amount of the energy expenditure for bacteria, like more than half. And it's been incredibly optimized. And it's in this incredible machine that's basically organizing matter as it runs along. So, it, you know, it, it turns RNA, it reads off RNA, it strings together amino acids to make proteins. It's really like a builder machine. And it's actually probably highly constrained by the second law of thermodynamics because it's, it's been optimized to death. And it's kind of like the most important machine in life, maybe, or something like that. One of them. <laughs> And that's inside every cell, right, of every organism, basically, except the ones, you know, some exceptions. But at the same time, that's still at the micro level. I think as you get bigger, there's other constraints, including other physical constraints that come into play. So, you know, if you're a bear and you catch a salmon or something, and it's very far away from KT, also. Of course, ultimately, that's feeding down to your cells, which are working at KT and so on. But, you know, the kinds of pressures and constraints that might characterize how much salmon a bear needs and how much energy it can get out of it and so on are new laws start to enter. So we shouldn't, you know, just like even though we think everything, you know, the whole universe is just one big quantum thing, right? We don't expect the universal laws of quantum physics to explain 
everything. And even though they are universal, but that's kind of the, I think the idea of one of the central ideas of complexity and emergence is you get qualitatively new laws, you get qualitatively new explanations, you get new vocabulary that you have to use, new types of vocabulary. New, and so I guess that, that's why I was pushing back a little bit. I don't, I don't necessarily think, even though these are universal relationships and they're really interesting, I'm not sure they necessarily do say something about why a group of insects evolves eusociality or something. I mean, I think that could be just explained by other ideas from evolutionary pressures, from group selection, kin selection, endosymbiosis. I mean, all of these um, evolutionary ideas. And in some sense, I think evolution is a much more multi-scale principle because you can really, as long as there's uh, heritable variation and fitness, you can kind of apply evolutionary thinking in its different forms. Well, let's let's hairpin back a little bit because there's another preprint that you just did uh, with David Wolpert on work entropy production and the thermodynamics of information under protocol constraints. And we, we kind of skipped over this a little bit in this conversation. But this is, if we're going to talk about the relevance to civilization. This has a lot to do, to my understanding, with how efficient we can make our inquiries of the world, you know, or, or rather, it seems like this sheds light on the bounds of how efficient an organism can be, or a battery, or what you can actually accomplish with computers. And in that respect, it's maybe not a constraints on size or scale or complexity, but it's mm -hmm. constraints on efficiency and on the retrievability of information and on the lower limits of how efficient you can make a system. And I'd love to hear you provide an exegesis of this piece. <laughs> yes, happily, happily. Oh, okay, I'm back. Um... Yeah, I think that's actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I think it's conceptually very closely related to the stuff we were discussing before about semantic information and meaningful information versus just sort of meaningless correlations and so on. And so one of the ideas in non-equilibrium statistical physics is, so there's a classic paradox in statistical physics, which is something called Maxwell's demon, which some of our listeners are probably familiar with. But it's this idea that, you know, the second law of thermodynamics says that things basically, if left to themselves, they go to equilibrium. And uh, to take them out of equilibrium, you have to do some work on it. And Maxwell came up with this kind of toy model where he imagined a box of gas in equilibrium and he imagined a little intelligent being just observing the particles flying around in this box. And he observed that actually by just like opening and closing a little door, this being could sort the particles into hot and cold ones, which should not be in equilibrium state. And it can do this with actually without doing any work or doing an arbitrarily small amount of work. And so this is a classic paradox in statistical physics that people argued a lot about. And actually one of the reasons why there has been, you know, this kind of explosion of interest in the physics of information and the growth of this field studying information and matter and energies because people feel like it's really kind of resolved this paradox in a very deep way. And the way it resolved it is that it basically shows that in order to make a measurement, the demon has to write down the information it measured into some kind of physical system, like a little hard drive. And if it does this over and over and over, it has to then erase what it wrote before and write the new measurement. It has to do this over and over and over. And basically, there's different ways to explain it, but in this manner of explaining it, every time it erases what it wrote before, it has to do a little bit of work. And so actually, if you do the calculation, you can see that the total amount of work that the demon performed in order to write down these observations and then erase them and to write them down again is at best at least as big as the work that it could then extract by sorting the particles into hot and cold ones and then putting some kind of piston or some kind of engine between them and using it to you know lift a weight or do something useful 
So basically, the resolution is if you kind of also think of this intelligent being, this demon, as as part of the physical world, also obeying the laws of physics, also obeying the second law of thermodynamics, then the paradox is, in some sense, completely resolved. And this is a, I think it's, I mean, it's a really interesting observation. And one of the things it says is, if the demon is optimally efficient, basically, then for each bit of information it has about the system, so each like yes or no question it can answer correctly about the system, it can extract a little bit of work. And this little bit of work is actually proportional. It's about KT, this quantity we talked about. This is kind of the conversion factor. Or it's KT log two, but it's, uh, you know, you can think about it as KT. It's just a un units thing. And in this paper that you mentioned the, about entropy production and work under constraints, maybe it sounds very practical. I mean, I, I would still say it's kind of a th theoretical conceptual argument, but the argument is kind of related to these ideas about semantic information. The idea is like, actually, how much work the demon can extract from the system, which, you know, is in some sense the value of the information for the demon. So if the demon is a little organism, you know, and using this information to, using this work that extracts to maintain itself, fix itself, make more proteins or whatever, then work is really valuable, right? And so the information it has about the system is really valuable. But one of the things we kind of pointed out is like, this information is valuable only if this demon, let's say, can manipulate the system in a way that takes advantage of this information. And what do I mean by that? So like, let's say, you know, I mentioned the electron in the edge of the universe, which kind of messes up whether or not and one atom collides into another atom or not. Let's say I know for sure whether this electron on the edge of the universe is present or not, or the electron on the edge of the galaxy or whatever it is. There's no way I can use that information, right? So even though I know it, I can't put like a little piston in place and have that electron push against it or something because it's too far away. I'm a limited being. And so there's a kind of alignment between what I know and what I can take advantage of. And a lot of this paper is is kind of working out the implications of that and working out how to formalize that properly. And so, you know, we we kind of use over and over again this example, which is which is closely related to Maxwell's demon and it kind of comes from literature of that is you just you have a box and you have a single particle in the box flying around. And you then make a measurement, so you acquire a bit of information. Is this particle on the left or the right side of the box? And depending on whether it's on the left or the right side of the box, you put in a little part, vertical partition to separate the two halves. And then if you now know whether it's on the left or the right side of the partition, you can actually move the partition in a slowly and extract some work. And basically, you can turn that knowledge, that information you have, into something useful, which is energy. And what we point out is that whole setup depends on the alignment between the fact that you measure whether the particle is on the left or the right side of the box. And then you have a vertical partition that can split the box into the left and the right half. If you had a vertical, if you had a horizontal partition barrier that could split the box into a top and bottom, you couldn't, it would be completely useless to you to know whether the particle is on the left or right. You, could, you couldn't actually take advantage of that. And you know, this connects to this idea of semantic information because it's sort of like saying, well, the only can what is meaningful information depends on how you can interact with to you. What is meaningful to you depends on how you can interact with the world. And certainly organisms are very limited in how they can interact with the world. For example, you know, we're very local, right? We, we can only go to one place and eat from one place at a time. We can't use magnetic fields or something to couple to distant locations at once. And we have lots of other constraints on how we can interact with the world. And I think, you know, at a very high level, certainly what we've been evolved to measure is the kind of information that we can take advantage of. But also, one could use these results to maybe look at a system that we, well, we didn't know if it was evolved or not. We didn't know anything about it. And we could say, how efficient is it in the sense, like, is it measuring things that it can then use or not? So that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of the breakdown 
of the paper. So yeah, and and again, I mean, in a way, it's kind of in some high level way, it's it's influenced by this ideas from like embodied cognitive science, right? So partly what gives meaning to things is the body you have. Also, what constrains you sometimes in very useful ways. Like we're not yeah. just disembodied brains and vats that are just like processing, you know, bits. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, I, I'm always looking for the, uh, the <laughs> because I'm in this body in this place and time, which is responsible for like distilling this stuff for Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I'm always looking for like the pithy aphorism or like how do I how do I encapsulate this in a way that I can make it through the uh, electronic membrane. Uh, and, and the other, you know, the, what this boils down to, it seems like for me, correct me if I'm wrong, is that kind of what you're saying is that you, you're providing the mathematical formalizations for why time sometimes is, but is not always money, why knowledge sometimes is, but is not always power. And then like how, when we had, you know, Mirta Galasik on the show, and she's talking about politically motivated cognition and how people have these biases where they project out into the world their inferences based on local information and they err all of us err by assuming that the features of our little corner or little patch of the world is representative of the world as a whole and therefore you get into these weird situations where we don't actually care about actually what is true so mm -hmm. much as we care about what allows us to synchronize and uh, collaborate effectively with the people mm -hmm. upon whom we depend or the systems upon which we depend that it seems like you know your work is is shedding light on that and like why it is that we have uh, we favor certain kinds of knowledge over other kinds of knowledge and yet we we tend to paint it all with this single brush and call it all the truth or the fact when in fact it's, it's much more variable and, and uh, heterogeneous. Yeah. Certainly knowing the lottery ticket numbers for yesterday's drawing is different than knowing them for tomorrow's. Right. But kind of similar types of information can have very different implications. But I think there's also, I mean, you, I think you painted this constrained nature it's sort of a drawback or a limitation, right? But I also think, you know, and this is not really something we address in the paper, but it's something I, I'm kind of interested in exploring is like, I actually think it is because we as organisms are so constrained that it makes sense to acquire information. It makes sense to have intelligence. It makes sense to have very sophisticated, complex behaviors. And what I mean by that is, you know, if, for example, we could be in every place at once, I mean, you know, if we could couple with like distant locations, we, we wouldn't need eyesight, right? So a lot of the, and we wouldn't need visual processing and we wouldn't need all these like amazing locomotion, body movement behaviors that organisms do. Maybe it's kind of a truism, but like the really amazing cognitive, behavioral and sensory things that we do individually and collectively are ways to overcome our limitations. And so just to, to, to give you kind of a simple example to go back to Maxwell's demon, it's actually interesting. So Maxwell's demon is sometimes seen as like a minimal model of a kind of information using organism, which I think is actually a bad model for various reasons, although it's a provocative one. But as I said, like Maxwell's demon, if it's op operating completely optimally, can at best break even, meaning the best it can do is the same that it would do by not doing anything at all. And that's, I think, you know, one reason for that, there's a, there's a couple kind of reasons for that. One reason for that is because it's not constrained in any way. So it, there's no sort of advantage to acquiring the right kind of information or processing it in the right way and so on. Huh. <laughs> it's a fascinating thing. I, you know, I, I feel like we've uh, rounded the bases here. <laughs> If people's heads aren't spinning now, then all I can do is, I guess, invite them to uh, look you up on Twitter. 
Yeah, you know, or, or your play, door. play, play a bunch of like crazy sound effects, like like they do on the Mexican radio station. Read these papers, <laughs> and you know, and see if that does it for you. Artemy, thank you so much for being on the show. It's just such a an inspiring thing to talk to you every time I have the opportunity to do so. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for doing the show. I mean, you're like running a amazing one man content producing disseminating uh i think you really do an amazing job with the show and the social media stuff in general very impressive Thanks, me. like with everything at sfi it is a team project the show is supported yes. through a lot of help people like jenna marshall our communications manager the sfi press laura and sienna and katie and everybody working at ip fest you know it's just it's a beautiful thing to be part of i don't know what you would call this a uh like a Markov blanket of <laughs> dorks. <laughs> but, you know, I, I really hope that uh, wherever this research leads you, this conversation leads people to you. And it leads people into these questions because I, I find these questions to be some of the, the juiciest and most nutritious questions we can be asking about this world. And, and really, it's, it's uh, just recursive. It's just endless. <laughs> it gets you all the way there and then you realize you're never going to get there because the horizon keeps unrolling so thanks a lot man yeah yeah it's good it's good to think about one small part of it that encapsulates the bigger issues and i think it can be done and i think maybe maybe that's one way forward actually anyway thanks a lot let's hang when the i don't know lockdown is over maybe sounds good Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.